Good morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This morning we will uh, pick up where we left off and consider verses 10 down through verse 17 uh, here in just a moment. As you find your place, uh, Pastor Jay has already uh, prayed for Church at the Park. I want to remind you just of a few logistics there before we begin our time of sermon. If you show up here at 930 you will be alone because our church, which is not this building, which is part of the sermon this morning, uh, the church is the people, and our church is going to relocate for one Sunday. We do this every fall to Bennett's Creek Park. Uh, we will worship together a little later in the morning at 10.30 instead of 9.30, so make that note, 10.30, not here, Bennett's Creek Park, and then after we worship together, uh, we will uh, enjoy a picnic together. The church is providing uh, some of the food. We're asking you to bring some food. There's instructions for this. We've been doing this for so long that some of you just don't need instructions. But if you do, uh, there are handouts that look like this. They are in the back. They are on the table with the invitation cards. They're on the information desk. We have them spread out really all over the church. It tells you what Church at the Park is, what you need to bring to Church at the Park. We would encourage you to bring a chair because there are no chairs out there, so bring a chair with you. Uh, bring some food to contribute to the picnic. If you don't like eating other people's food and you simply want to bring a picnic lunch for your family, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, but we pray for a, a, a good weather day so we can just be together as a church, worship together, enjoy the meal together, and enjoy fe uh, fellowship together out at the park next Sunday. And so 1030, if you don't know where Bennett's Creek Park is, there's even a map on the back of this. So they're on the back table as well as several places uh, in the lobby. And we look forward to worshiping in public uh, in our community next Sunday. And I will actually just continue. I'm going to pick up in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 next Sunday at the park. So it really is just a normal worship service. We're just doing it somewhere else. So we hope that you will join us there next Sunday as God's church gathers instead of on this corner uh, at the park. And if it rains, watch our Facebook page, watch our, uh, the website, all of that. Because if it rains, we would just gather here, okay? But we will, we will announce that online. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers that is Nansman River Baptist Church for our opportunity to worship you, to pray together, to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another in the word of God. Thank you for the unity of the spirit and the bond of brotherhood and sisterhood that we share with one another as this faith family. God, we pray this morning that your son Jesus has been exalted in our worship, that your name has been glorified, and we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and move in our hearts, drawing us towards Christ-likeness. We do pause together to pray for what many of us likely watched unfold yesterday in Israel, recognizing, God, that evil still exists in this world and that innocent lives were lost. We pray, Father, for the Christians in Israel, for Christians in the Western Bank, for Christians even in the Gaza Strip, who today would gather on this Lord's Day, even in the face of war, Father, would you strengthen and encourage our brothers and sisters in that land today as we have prayed for them in other lands facing persecution and famine and sword. Father, we pray that they would represent the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of hardship. Would you bring peace to that land, we pray. Bless us through your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, as we continue our series in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, we come to these verses in a sermon entitled, The Foundation Matters. Today is a sermon of metaphors, and some of you are quite literal people, and so you get tripped up when the Bible uses metaphors, and today is a sermon of more than one metaphor, and a proclamation together. Last week's metaphor was fairly simple, that Paul planted some seeds, that Apollos watered those seeds, but ultimately God gave the growth in his field. And then at the end, he transitions, you are God's field, you are God's building. What we will see by the end of the passage today is it's not just any building. Paul's not talking about just some random field or some random building, but he has a specific field and a specific building in mind, the temple. And we we have to understand this, this metaphor in the way that Paul would have understood it and the way that he likely, in his 18 months in Corinth, would have instructed the Corinthian church in the wisdom of God through the scriptures of the Old Testament. The field, which he has already addressed, we must understand that Paul at least had somewhat in his mind the Garden of Eden, that first place where God created Adam and Eve and was in right relationship with his creation and his creation without sin was in right relationship with him where God dwelt among his people. And now, not just a general building or even a 
general temple, but the temple, Solomon's temple, built about a thousand years before Paul would write this. Eden and the temple were regularly connected in the Hebrew understanding of God dwelling with his people. The temple was, for God's Old Testament people, a sign that God dwelled in their midst. It was a reminder that God was there with them and that he would one day restore his people to his field, to Eden. Now, Paul writes to a mainly Gentile congregation, those who were outside of the old covenant but are now included in the new covenant people of God and calls them a garden, a field, that God is tending and that God is giving the growth and a temple, the temple. While the temple, the second temple, not Solomon's temple, but the one built by Zerubbabel and expanded by Herod, still stood in Jerusalem. Paul, a former Pharisee, Jew of Jews, he called himself, writes to Gentiles outside of the Holy Land and says, you are the temple of God. This is an important point for us to understand today that as we read through this metaphor of the church as a building built on a specific foundation, we must understand all that is contained within this picture as Paul writes this to Corinth and through the word to us. The main idea of our sermon today is that Jesus Christ is the eternal foundation upon which his holy church, the new temple, is built. Jesus is the foundation, the church is the temple, and only that which is built upon the eternal foundation of Christ will survive. This is what we will see through this text this morning in three parts. The first is that Jesus is the only eternal eternal foundation. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. God given to me like a skilled master builder, I remind laid a foundation. Most of us in this room would be very early on. We would not lay an appropriate foundation. We wouldn't know how deep to dig the footers. We wouldn't know exactly what to pour in their place. We would be utterly lost and our building would fail because of the foundation. Paul looks at his work in the life of the church at Corinth. We should read it like that. Like one who knows what doing, listen to the previous metaphor, the field metaphor where he planted and then another guy named Apollos came after him and, and watered and Apollos and others, because Paul is not being specific here, that others built upon that foundation which was laid, but anyone who's seeking to build within the church must, Paul warns, take care how he builds 
Specifically, he must take care how he builds upon the foundation. And then he clarifies for us within the metaphor who and what the foundation is. It's very simple. Paul says in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church is built on one foundation and one foundation alone, the person and work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was raised from the grave by the power of the Father, and now sits at the right hand of God with his work complete. It is upon Jesus Christ alone that his church is built. When God the Father gave the growth in the, where God the Father gave the growth in the field metaphor, in this building, or should we say temple metaphor, it is Christ the Son who is the exclusive foundation for his church. We can't build God's church on any idea outside of the person and work of Jesus. We often say it like this, that's the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus. We, we can't build the church on anything other than Christ alone. Jesus had a unique relationship with the physical temple that existed during his day in Jerusalem and still existed yet during Paul's day as he writes this. The gospel authors, there's four. If you're new to the Bible, there are four books of the Bible that tell us about the life of Jesus. We call these the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the gospel authors write for us varying accounts of Jesus interacting with the temple. For instance, Luke tells us some things about Jesus coming to the temple as a as a baby and then ultimately as a small child. John tells us a story that none of the other gospel authors tell us or at least in a place that none of the other gospel authors put it. In John chapter two, Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry and does something that the other gospel authors associate with the end of Jesus's ministry. He goes in and he sees the crowd. He sees that the temple had become a marketplace for selling goods and a, a, a thoroughfare from people to go from one side to the other. And John tells us at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he clears the temple. He runs out those who are money changers and selling animals in the temple. He blocks off the, the thoroughfare through the temple from one part of the city to another. And John tells us in John chapter 2, verse 17, that his disciples remembered that which was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That is a quotation from Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm, looking forward to the coming Messiah, where zeal for your house will consume me. The house there is the temple. We keep reading in John 2, where the Jews who Jesus had, had just run out of the temple say to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Basically, they say, who do you think you are? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Now just stop for a minute. The temple by that point was much older. Zerubbabel's temple was about 500 years old in this point. When they say 46 years it's taken, they're talking about the expansion, which was known as Herod's expansion of the temple. It had become this marvelously grand thing that Herod had expanded the foundation, expanded the walls, expanded the porticos around the temple. So 
that's what they're looking at. It's taken 46 years to do this, Jesus, and you're going you're gonna to build it in three days in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus, too, was sharing in the metaphor of Paul, but instead of talking about the church, he was talking about himself. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, Jesus looked, standing in there in the midst of the temple where, where his disciples remembered the messianic psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. But even Jesus looked at those bricks and stones and gold and said, this isn't the real temple. My body is the real temple and foreshadows what would happen at the end of his ministry where his body would be broken but would be raised again on the third day. This is the foundation for the temple that is the church of God. So what does it mean to build upon that foundation? Well, Jesus tells us, because it's not just this idea. We don't just build a church on the idea of Christ. We build the church on eternal truths of Christ. The most famous sermon that Jesus preaches in the in the Gospels, the longest one recorded for us is one that we have entitled the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, draws out his disciples and a great crowd follows. He sits on a, on a mountainside and he teaches them for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of that, Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and, and, and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, it's not the idea of Christ that we build on. It's his life and sacrificial death, which inevitably must include his teachings. This is why in, as a part of the Great Commission, which we considered last week from the end of Matthew 28, Jesus instructs his church to teach new disciples all that has been commanded. We can't separate the work of Christ from the word of Christ. So when the church of God is built on the eternal foundation of Jesus, it's not simply on the idea of Jesus or on the name of Jesus. It's on what Jesus has said is true. Church, this is why we dogmatically stand on the truth of God's word. Because without it, we are building our lives. We, are, we would even be building our church on the sand, and it would not last for long. It may last for a while. It may last for a decade. It may last for a generation, but it will ultimately fade away. And this is what the truth of church history has told us, that churches that build themselves on anything other than the truth of God's word will ultimately not stand the test of time. The rain will fall, the floods will come, the winds will blow, and they will fall over because they are not built on the foundation of Christ and his word. For us to be built into the kind of temple that God would have our church to be, it must be built every corner of the building on the eternal foundation that is Jesus Christ and his word. Number two. Only that which is built upon the foundation of Christ will survive and be worthy of reward. 
So there at the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has said that some will build their house. He's talking about the house of someone's life. Paul's talking about the, the, the building, the temple of the church, but the metaphors work together, right? So if we think individually or we think corporately, anything built outside of Christ, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, will not remain. And Paul furthers this idea for us in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In verse 12, Paul uses some very specific language about the building on the foundation. He says that some will be built, some of the materials are gold, silver, precious stones, others are wood, hay, and straw. This, if you know anything about your Old Testament, some of these things should kind of ring a bell for us because these were some of the materials that were used in the building of the temple. It's actually the only building that's described in the entire Bible that's built on a specific foundation that uses these materials. So Paul is being clear about what his metaphor is, that the church, as he's going to reveal in later verses, is the temple of God. But some of these are obviously more sturdy building materials, more long-lasting and more valuable building materials than others. For instance, gold is more valuable than silver. You'll notice they're in descending order. Silver is more valuable than precious stones. And when we read precious stones, he's probably talking about large blocks that were carved out for a building, not like gemstones. Wood, more valuable than hay. Hay, more valuable than straw. And then he says they will be tested by fire, verse 13 says, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So there's the foundation of Christ. The church is then built on the foundation of Christ. And some of the things that the church build will remain and some will not. Some will survive the fire, some wouldn't. This is actually a metaphor that was understood by Paul's uh, designated audience, the church at Corinth, very well because about 110 years before Paul would write this letter, so not in the lifetime of any of them, but about 110 years before Paul writes this letter, the Romans burn the city of Corinth. They burn it completely to the ground, and it, and it stays that way for almost for almost 100 years. I mean, it, it stays just utterly destroyed for a very long time until it's, the Romans finally rebuilt it. And so it's likely, knowing ancient construction practices, it's likely that we can assume that this church, meeting in a house, reading this letter, is, is meeting in a building that may have burn marks still on it. Because in ancient construction practices, they wouldn't ever start new if you could use something that was old. And so some of the things, even in this list, right, gold, silver, precious stones, would not have burned up. They would have remained, and the next generation that comes and rebuilds Corinth would have used those same building materials. So the idea of things being burned up and yet still lasting is in the DNA of the people of Corinth. But only that which is built upon Christ in the spiritual realm for his church, only that will remain. 
So since this is a sermon on metaphor, let's, let's confuse our metaphors a little bit more and go to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, we return back kind of to the garden, the field metaphor, where Jesus talks about being the true vine. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That is that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. Now catch this, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Both the agrarian uh, metaphor and the construction metaphor have that which is not built on the foundation of Christ, not connected to the, the, the vine of Christ, ultimately burned away. Both of these teachings show us that all that is outside of Christ is temporal and it will be destroyed. There are so many what we would consider good things that even the church could do and become proud of that that will eventually burn and, and be destroyed because they're not built on the firm foundation of Christ. They're, they're what we would say it like this here. They're outside of the mission. The mission that Jesus has given, our, uh, has given his disciples and his church, which we focused on last week, is, is the gospel. It's the great commission. It's to make disciples through the gospel of Jesus. So what the church does outside of that, while it may seem good in our eyes, it will ultimately burn and fade away because it's not built on the firm foundation, the eternal foundation of Christ. So how can we know then? How can we look at our lives? And this is a corporate metaphor. He's talking about the collective local church. How can we look around and say, what are we building on Christ that will survive? Well, Peter helps us in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, church, it is faith, which is a gift of God to his church, and that which is done in faith that remains after the testing of fire. So it is what we are doing in faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus' word says for his church and what he is doing through his church to redeem a people for himself. It is that which God has called his church to do by faith that will remain for all eternity. And it is that which is done in faith that will receive a reward. Look at with me in verses 14 and 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul promises this, this, that as we, his church, the, the church of Christ, 
build upon the foundation that is the gospel of Christ and that is his word, and we do so in faith, it will, it will stand the test of time. It will stand the trials. It will remain until the end, and it will receive a reward. Some things will be burned up. I, I fully know this. I actually think this is something that's, that's comforting to me, that we don't do everything right here. Maybe you're new. Maybe you've been in other churches that everything that they have ever done claims to be right. Like, that's just not who we are as a people. Here's what we know. We're probably wrong about something. I don't think we're wrong about anything that has eternal importance, though, because we're, we're building the, the, this church on the foundation of Christ and his word. But there may be some minor practices here. There may be some ministries here that ultimately we didn't need to do or didn't need to emphasize. These are possibilities for us. And some of these things may eventually be tested by fire and burn up in that day. Oh, but church, I believe that what we have done, what we have done in the name of Christ, what we are doing by faith, building upon the foundation of Jesus, his gospel and his word will stand the test of time. It will stand the trial of fire and it will be rewarded in eternity. There are other places where we can see this picture of reward. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter writes to, to the elders of the churches that he is writing. He's writing to five different churches and he addresses their elders in 1 Peter 5. And he says this to them at the end of that section. And when the chief shepherd appears, talking about Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The promise of reward to elders, this is a promise of reward to elders in the church uh, but I'm not using it to just say that elders will be rewarded, but to illustrate the kind of reward. It's an eternal reward. It's a royal reward. It's a glorious reward that the church of God shares in. I, I can't tell you much more about it other than to say it, that this is how the scriptures describe it. It's a popular question that pastors get. What's the eternal reward look like? I don't know. I know that it's eternal. And I know that it's a reward. It's going to be glorious. It's going to have a royal component to it. Because it's, it's a crown of, 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 of glory, Peter says. And it's coming for the church. This is why John quotes the revelation of Jesus at the end of the Bible. Revelation 22. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his word. Church, if you are building on the foundation of Christ, if we together are building on the foundation of Christ, an eternal reward awaits us. So we keep up the good work, knowing that, yes, some of what we do in this life will, will be tested by fire and will burn away, but that which we build upon the gospel of Jesus and the word of God will not, it will be rewarded both in a personal sense, and I believe this, in a corporate sense, that we, the church of God will receive a reward. Number three, the church is now the holy temple of God. Paul is done with, with building the metaphor. We could say he's done beating around the bush a little bit. He's just going to clearly say it now. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul just says it. Remember, he's talking to Christians that he considers pretty immature. 
they should have gotten the point by now. But he kind of says, do you not know? Like he finally gets to the point. He's like, I'm just going to spell it out for you. This is who you are. You are the temple. Now, again, we should be mesmerized by this because the, the Hebrew temple still stands when Paul writes these words. It's still in Jerusalem. Sacrifices are still being made. The Jewish people believed that the Spirit of God still dwelt on the other side of the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And yet Paul says that is no longer true. That's no longer the temple of God. That the, 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 the spirit of God no longer dwells in that place. Those sacrifices, these are the things the New Testament teaches us. Those sacrifices are no longer efficient and effective for the salvation of people. It, it's no longer good what they are doing there. Why? Because you, Gentile Christians, who were once far off from God, have not only been brought near, you have been made into the temple of God. And the Spirit of God, which used to dwell in this 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot room in Jerusalem, now dwells in your little immature local church. Wow. And then you want to talk about a cataclysmic shift. No longer do we need to go to Jerusalem to see God. All we need to do is go and be amongst the people of God. You are the temple. Later, Paul would, later in this letter, Paul would use this same idea, but apply it personally as it relates to holiness. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Paul uses the same metaphor to draw the church individually towards holiness. To call us to recognize that the Spirit of God lives within us. Here, though, it's, it's a corporate metaphor. It's that the Spirit of God lives within us. And one of the temptations that the church of God has, has faced over the last 2,000 years and has truthfully not done a great job of it is we face the temptation to put God back in a temple made of gold and silver and precious stones and brick and mortar. We, 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 we've, we've given in so often to, to the temptation of sanctifying a place or sanctifying a building instead of sanctifying a people. But the scripture is clear in Acts 17 tells us God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples made by man. No temples that the Greeks built, no temples that the Romans built, no temples that the Hindus have built, no temples that the Muslims have built, and no temples that the Christians have built holds God. Because God lives in us. This is why I gently, as a pastor, will push back on you if you try to make this room holy. It's not because I don't think this room is special. I do think it's special. It is literally my favorite place. Because it's where I get to do this with you every week. I think this is an incredibly special place. I don't think it's a holy place. You know, when the end comes, this building will burn. And it will not matter one bit. Because Nansman River Baptist Church is not brick and mortar. We are not gold and silver. We are not hay and straw. We are a 
people covenanted together as a church. So let me just illustrate it for a second. You ready? This is timely. A couple of months ago, we came to you and we said, hey, church, our lights are failing. Look up. You can tell. And it's going to be very expensive for us to replace it, but we need to replace it. And God has given us the money, so we had you vote as a church to do that. And you gave the elders permission to go do that the best way that we could. And what we did was we had you approve a really large number. It was the highest quote that we had. And we were seriously considered going with it. For those of you that weren't a part of that, it was $135,000. That's a lot of money. And then kind of in the 11th hour, we found another company who we brought in and they looked at our building and they said, you know, we could do something very different and it would change the look of this room a little bit but we'd be able to do it for $50,000. And so they show up tomorrow. This will be the last time we have to meet with, in the dark over here, okay? They show up tomorrow. We asked them to come during church at the park so they could have, a, so we wouldn't be in here next Sunday, okay? So they, they show up tomorrow. We're saving $85,000 that we can now use for ministry to the glory of God. That's, that's fantastic. But somebody may walk in here and go, I don't really like what y'all did with the lights, Somebody else is going to walk in here and love it. But can we just say something? The lights in this room are not holy, right? If you love these things up here, next week you come up here, you can take one home, you can put it in your dining room. (laughs) But they're not sanctified and holy, okay? And seriously, if you want one, we'll probably give it to you. I mean, they'll probably about Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, they're going to come down. You'll never see them again, okay? Most of us are not going to mourn that, but a few might. But there's nothing in this room, there's nothing in this place that's, that's sanctified and set apart. It's, it's a people that are sanctified and set apart. This is why Paul, Paul returns this same metaphor in his second letter to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from the midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul uses a compilation of Old Testament messianic prophecies to show that in the new covenant, the Lord would not dwell in a building, but he would dwell in and amongst his people. So Nansman River Baptist Church, the Lord dwells within us because we are his temple. And hear me, there is no greater temple than this one. And not this building, but this people. Because God is in his people. So what? As the holy temple of God, that's who we are, church. As the holy temple of God, we proclaim the gospel of Christ, our sure and eternal foundation. I've already told you, Hebrews 10 makes clear there is no longer need for sacrifices in the temple, but within the new covenant temple, within the new covenant people of God, we are instructed to remember a sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ in our place that justifies and sanctifies his church and makes us holy, and makes us his temple by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that is who we are. We are the holy temple of God, proclaiming the foundation of our temple as Christ until he returns. 
And we've been given the specific instructions of how to do that. As, as months ago as I was preparing this, I said, this is a Lord's Supper Sunday. Because we've been told how to do this. We do this through the Lord's Supper. We, you may have grew up in a, in, a, in a faith tradition that calls it communion. It's the same thing. What, what we're doing is, is we're remembering the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, not re-sacrificing him. We don't break the body of Christ and spill the blood of Christ when we come to the table. We remember it and we proclaim it to one another and to the world. But here's what's important. Here's what I want us to see before we do that together. That holiness matters. We are the holy temple of God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll get to next year, Paul gives us some instructions about how to come to the Lord's table as the holy temple. He says, starting in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for everyone, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In giving them instructions about the Lord's table, Paul says, your holiness matters, church. Your holiness matters. And so we don't examine ourselves for perfection because if we were called to examine ourselves to perfection, not a single one of us could honestly come to the table. But we do examine ourselves to, to remind us of our great need for Christ's sacrifice in our place, to remind us that we did nothing to deserve it, that we were far off from God, but Christ, our firm foundation, has brought us near to him. And to recommit ourselves towards holiness and righteousness as the people of God, as his temple. So what we observe at the Lord's table is a reminder of that final sacrifice a reminder of why the temple is no longer in Jerusalem, why the temple is now here in North Suffolk, and why the temple is in millions of other places gathered on this Lord's Day around the world, anywhere the people of God are gathered, and we are called to holiness, and we are called to gospel proclamation, and we are called to self-evaluation together as spirit-filled Christians of God. We come to the table reminding one another of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice in our place. And that that message alone is the foundation upon which our church is built. So if I could, I would like to take a moment to do what is called fencing the table. You see, this meal is not for everyone. This meal is for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ alone and have publicly declared that. We don't practice a closed communion here, meaning if you're a guest, if you're not a member of our church, you are welcome at the Lord's table if that description is true of you. If you have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, then you are welcome to receive the elements with us. If you have not, we are glad that you are here because you are giving us the opportunity to proclaim to you what we believe. And what we have trusted in. 
And so we would ask you to refrain from taking the bread and the cup and just watch us and to consider the good news of the gospel that for you too, my friend, Jesus Christ died. For you too, my friend, was his blood spilled so that you could also be a holy temple of God. Always like to give this warning as well. Parents, this isn't a time to give in to children. This is a time for you to demonstrate to your children that they too need Jesus. It's a great opportunity to have a conversation on the ride home. So I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, I'm going to invite our men forward. God, we examine our lives now. We take just this moment to consider our lives, to consider just how wretched we are, but that you have made us holy. And God, we thank you that by the blood of Jesus, we can be holy. And we pray, God, that now your holiness would be known in this place because your spirit is within this people. Guide us in all righteousness, we pray. Thank you for entrusting your spirit not to a building and not to a room, but to this people. May we honor that. May we recognize the presence of God is very real as we gather and as we now remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Church family, if you'll remain seated during this song, we will distribute the elements to you and then we will receive them together in a moment.